Hello, I'm Simon Rimmer, back for another season of Grilling in association with Weber Barbecues, in which I'll be joined by more groundbreaking chefs to discuss their passion for food and our wonderful industry. Now, if you're new to the podcast, you've missed Tom Kerridge, Angela Hartner, Michelle Rue Jr., Monica Galletti, the Henry Bikers, Nadia Hussain, to name but a few. But don't worry, you can find every single previous episode via your preferred podcast provider. Now, if you're a returning listener, you'll notice a slight difference to the format this time around. As you know, we've traditionally asked our guests to describe a dish they prepare on the barbecue in our 30-second recipe challenge. Now, this time around, we've decided to film them actually doing it, though we're obviously giving them a little bit more time. In fact, uh, you can see our first guest right now at Weber.com showing you how to make an absolutely delicious Hasselback beetroot with lime leaf butter on a Weber grill. But who is it? Well, if I tell you, he was born in Israel and now lives in the UK, where he's well known for his high quality Middle Eastern cuisine, as well as being a lover of exotic ingredients and a proper vegetable evangelist. Now, you might have a fair idea. He also has a string of restaurants in London and has sold literally hundreds of thousands of copies of his books, which are at once brilliant, varied and award winning. Yes, of course, it's Yotam Ottolenghi. Yotam, welcome. I don't even know where to begin this. When I, when I read through the notes, I have to not start with food, really, because your background is so quite incredible. So, <laughs> well, you, you just said everything. So growing up, talk, talk us through childhood. Uh, so I grew up in Jerusalem, and um, Jerusalem is, a, is an incredible city in the sense that, I mean, there's all that history, probably one of the more famous places in the world. People have a set of connotations, associations. It's, it's just that, you know, it's like all everything you think, you know, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, all coming together with this kind of intensity. And this intensity is really like, that's how the city is like. Are you aware of that as a kid? Or is it almost something that as you become an adult and your world changes. You're, you're totally aware. You know, you go to the old city with, you know, you got the Jewish quarter, the Muslim quarter, the, uh, the, the, you know, and it, they all live side by side, but there's obviously, you, as we know, unfortunately, a lot of tension going on. You're totally aware of that. Uh, but all those the religious symbols in food as well, like, you know, so, you know, we're talking about food. I, I've always tend to talk about food, but, you know, you go to the old city and you've got in the Muslim quarter you've got these incredible homeless places which are like establishments you know you go and sit down and you know people think like now we talk about homeless it's like something comes out of a tub it's like coleslaw right this is just not what it is in the real in the real world it's not it's not a spread it's not a base for that you put you know salami on it's actually it's a meal it's prepared freshly and you serve it with egg and with onion with pita and it comes kind of warmish and it's a ceremony and you go and you realize like you're in the presence of something super delicious that has taken a long time to prepare. And so you see, the food cultures are also really, really uh, present. So that's East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem. You've got the equivalent in the Jewish part, which is the big fruit and vegetable markets and the big restaurants that go with them, often like these kind of eateries, where really fresh stuff that comes just straight from the market is presented to you. So, it was intense. It was intense in so many ways, in food-wise, religious, politics, it's all kind of thrown in the mix, and it's never, it's never dull. And, and your parents, so what, what did they do? My parents were, uh, my dad was a professor, my mom was a teacher, so we were in an academic household, and I kind of always expected to end up be, you know, going to university and doing something academic. It was just like, you know, never really questioned that. 
because that's the, 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 the life I, I lived at home and our surroundings. But, and I did go to university. Uh, I went to university. Yeah, and did proper grown-up stuff. You know, I went to university and did fashion and textile design. I did something creative, but you did, you did a grown-up degree. Yeah, I did a master's in philosophy and literature, and I did that. I loved it because in some ways I learned a lot about lots of things that are really still relevant to me today, like, you know, thinking about the world, you know, how we operate and what, what's beautiful, what's not, you know, like big questions. So, so I, I did have a good time at university, and I, I was good at it, but I was also always feeling like it's quite a niche <laughs> world, uh -huh. you know, like you, I always, people ask me, so why did you not stay in academia? Why did you not become a teacher or a professor? I said like, cause you know, I, I felt like I'm talking to three people, you know, like, you know, all these discussions are very uh, limiting, you know, like you, you're a professor and maybe one of your colleagues would, in, would be interested in what you've just written or researched, but actually the implications for the rest of the world, especially in the, in the humanities are very minor. And then I also knew that on the other hand, I had to, you know, people came over for a dinner party or f some friends over for a snack and I would like impress them with something that I just bought in the market and cooked. How old were you when you started cooking? I started cooking when I went to university. Okay. I mean, cooking seriously. I mean, I used to watch my parents cook and I was interested in that, but I never thought, I'd, I never thought about it as something that I'm good at until I went to university and like so many other people that live, leave home, they go like, who cooks for me? You know, who's, <laughs> <laughs> what's going on here? Where's the food coming from? When, when you were at home, who cooked? Mum and dad or just mum? They were both yeah. good cooks. Because it's interesting, because many times when we, when we do grilling, we hear that an awful lot. And I was the same, both my parents cooked. And it almost feels that because you're surrounded by food, and you've said the same thing that so many people say as well, it's something I never thought I was good at almost that exposure to food from an early age, it just becomes part of you. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think in, ho in households where people are interested in food, cooking, eating, etc., it's biosmosis, you know, we all eat all the time. So you can't choose not to be part of that. You know, if, you, if your parents take you to restaurants or if they cook really good food at home and if they're curious, and both my parents are curious and just love food, you are infected by this, by this thing and, and then you carry it on with you, you know, wherever you go. So although I didn't think about it as a career option at that early stage, I thought, okay, well, I can do this because I know what good food is. So if I go and I learn a little bit how to cook, then I can, I, it's, it's, it's that freedom to be able to cater for yourself. It's, it's an incredible sense of freedom. Do you think you could always taste? I, I'm always a big believer that people who cook almost have always had quite an ability to taste things from a young age. Yes, you know, like, but I don't think in the environment that I grew up in, I don't think that was so unique. So in the sense, Jerusalem, going back to my childhood, was this incredible place. I hate the word melting pot because melting pot means that everything turns into one. But actually, we had these kind of cultures living side by side, influencing each other, but never kind of melding into one thing. Uh, so, you know, you'd have Palestinian food culture, which is incredible. People know that food from... Uh, maybe being exposed to it here through particular dishes, falafel and hummus, but it's so much more complex than that. There is this kind of incredible rice and bulgur dishes. There is the slow cooking, the using of use of yogurt, lentils, a lot of really interesting stuff that happens in different versions of Palestinian cooking and Palestinian cuisines. And then you had foods of Jewish diaspora, people, immigrants that have recently come from Europe, North Africa, Middle East, all those parts of the world. And I remember like going on a Friday afternoon to the 
to, there is this kind of these um, restaurants by the outskirts of the market, of the food and vegetable market, and they were like Kurdish Jews, Jews that came from Iraq, like the Kurdistan part of cooking these soups uh, that were like, had this kibbeh or kubbeh, which are, were made out of semolina and stuff with meat, and then outside you have like a beetroot soup or, or a lemony kind of soup and the whole thing you go like on a Friday and you go like this soup is just like so precious it's just a soup but so much work and love has gone into it and then there's the historical story of the community that made it so in some way you can't be picky because there's just so much to choose from each community with its own food and I think I'm, I'm, I was blessed by being uh, exposed to all these cuisines. It's really because it, it, it does make me jealous one, because you're incredibly, your, your description and your amazing writer as well is always good. And I sort of think when I was growing up, then something that was exciting was getting a piece of black pudding. And, the, you know, you describe... <laughs> Which I also love. <laughs> and you describe all these kind of variations of flavours. So it's almost like, it's almost not a surprise that that whole world w was integrated into you. So academia, what was the plan then? When you were at university and you were doing your masters, what did you think you were going to do? So in some senses, I, I thought, oh, I'll, I might just be there. I'll stay and be a teacher or a university teacher. I, I didn't really think of the end game. I just thought like, okay, I'll do this. I'll do my degree. If, if it was up to my dad, I would go and learn sciences because he was like, you know, he was like, he was a in chemistry, professor of chemistry. So he was, he, I think he would have preferred me to go and do something a bit more tangible, you know, than just like, humanities but I really enjoy what I did but in some ways he adjusted his, ex his expectations to okay so at least you're going to be you'll be in these this field but you'll be in university but but then I told <laughs> I had to tell him one day that I actually am going to completely neglect what I was doing for, leave behind what I was doing for the last three or four years and start something completely new which was cooking I, I nearly gave him a heart attack because it's like okay you're not going to be a scientist you're going to be uh, you know, you're going to be in the philosophy department or whatever, but now you're even throwing that away and you're going to go and do cooking. And, I, and for him, and he, bless him, I mean, he, he's not alive anymore, but he was like a, such a gentle man, but he was really worried about me. And, you know, we both have kids. Yeah. You know the feeling when you think your child makes the wrong choice, but you don't know what to do about it. I felt that the same about my dad. It was like, are you sure you want to be a cook? Like, are you, you know, because for him it was like really dangerous territory like how are you going to make a living what, is this what, respectable what you, enough what do you have siblings was i had a brother unfortunately he passed away yeah and i had an older sister and she was already at university studying uh, ec economics so she, yeah. she was okay you know so that, that was all right but so how, so how old are you then so so I'm the day comes when when you decide right you know what i'm not going to do this academia isn't for me i'm gonna change I think I was 26 or 27. Okay. I spent time in university and working as well. I worked in journalism uh, for a bit. And I was kind of, yeah, I was on that path. And then I, um, I just thought, I, I, this was when I came to London. So I, was, I started doing these kind of like home cooking, like educating myself, like cooking a bit more sophisticated stuff and getting like books and f about French cooking and learning the, like the formal terms for what I was doing, you know, how to make a sauce and the cuts, etc. But then I came to London. This was 1997. Okay, so how, how come you came to London? Uh, just life brought me to London. My partner wanted to do a business degree and I thought, okay, and we were living in Amsterdam for a couple of years, not really doing that much. And it's I, really funny when people tell their story, whenever we do this, and I'm, I think we're all guilty of it as human beings, that we jump 
and you forget the little bits. Right. So how did you end up in Amsterdam? Right. I, I, want, the, I want the full picture. I don't, I don't, I don't want the abridged version. I have nothing to hide. Uh, <laughs> so when I moved to, so I was still at university, uh, but we, I had a friend in Amsterdam and we thought like, okay, my partner at the time and I, we said we want to just like go somewhere fun. He finished his degree, I was in the, going to finish mine and we said Amsterdam is a fun city and uh, we're going to go to Amsterdam. And we just arrived one day, we had, uh, I, got, I got a job, like the weirdest job, I got a job uh, two jobs actually. <laughs> One of them was I worked at night in a hotel, a sleazy hotel by the train station in Amsterdam. I was serving uh, beers to sex workers. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm See, not gonna get, this is why you <laughs> need the full version. I knew there was going to be more to this story. This is, I'm not kidding you. So I didn't speak Dutch. I yeah. had to get a job, and a friend of mine worked at that hotel at night. He said, like, they need like people just you know to man yeah. the reception at the, this hotel. And we're really near the main train station in Amsterdam. I said, okay, I'll take that job. And literally my shift started like at 11 o'clock and I finished at six o'clock in the morning. And I was like, you know, some stoned kids came and got their rooms. I gave them the keys and then like six workers came. I served them beer because there was a beer tap there. And that was what I did at night. Like, and then in the morning, this was so disgusting. That's a food related story, but not like one you want to tell. I had to go and prepare the <laughs> breakfast. <laughs> oh so I had goodness. to go and get like this awful ham and cheese slice on the machines and then you know, on the meat slicer, get the awful like cardboard bread ready and the jam in the little <laughs> pouches and put that on the on the table. It was the most disgusting thing because you, sm you smelled of cigarettes and beers and then you had to go and break that like <laughs> breakfast. So I spent time at that hotel hating my job. How long did you do that for? For about a year. Yeah. No. Yeah. Because I, I, I also, every time I see you, you, you are, you know, you're a very cerebral human being. I can't imagine you doing that because you're very particular. This was one job I did. I did that about four nights a week. And yeah. another job I did, I went to the Jewish community as a good Jewish boss. I said, do you have a job? Like, so there was a newspaper, a magazine uh, that for the Jewish community. And I had my background in journalism. So the editor gave me a job as like writing little pieces and like editing, doing a bit of edit jobs that I, that I could do with my English and Hebrew. And so I worked there. So I wasn't completely in a kind of a desert of like of <laughs> hotel receptions. <laughs> but it was, it was a funny moment. But when I, I'm not even telling you that I, I, what I should have told you is I went out a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, I went out almost like like twice a week, like serious, like clubbing. So that was also part of what I did. So I'm, this is why I call it the desert years. You know, I, yeah. <laughs> I was kind of like... So, so your dad as an academic, as someone who clearly sort of, you know, yeah. worried about you. How did he react to that move from academia to Amsterdam? Or did he not know one part of your job? I don't think he knew what was going on in Amsterdam the whole time. You know, I did, I was still working on my master's dissertation. Yeah. I was doing it by correspondence. You know, I was still working, which I did. But yeah, I, I, he, he didn't know everything that was going on. Like you don't tell your parents what you do when you're 25, no. do you? No. Uh, I don't tell my parents now when I'm 59. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> All right, so, so after Amsterdam, so, so then two years in Amsterdam. So two years in Amsterdam, the desert years. And then I came to London and I thought like, okay, so I finished my university degree and now I, and I did enjoy cooking. And I, even in Amsterdam, I started uh, learning cooking a bit more seriously. And I came to London and my partner was doing a master's in business. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go and do the, a couple, I'll take a couple of courses. So I went to the Cordon Bleu and I signed up for a couple of basic courses. 
and essentially thought like I'm going to get some formal training here because to see if I want to do it. I I didn't really commit. I didn't think yeah. okay that's my next career. I just thought like let's see how good I am at this and whether I I like this or not. To be honest, I really enjoyed the the training. I loved the kind of the methodological like kind of French way, you know, these are the cuts, these are the sauces, this is the stock and this is how you make. I love this cuz I'm a I'm a cerebral person. Yeah. I love to understand how things work and get you know, proper training and understand, etc. So I did this at, during the day, and then in the evening I went to get like proper like work experience. So I went to the uh, Capital Restaurant in Knightsbridge. Uh, they had a Michelin star, and I thought like I need to get my Michelin star training, and uh, and I just worked for free after after school, like in the evenings. And but I had zero experience. So the chef t- told me go and work with the pastry chef. And she was a really nice woman, and she really taught me a lot about patisserie and pastry, which was my first how I landed in the kitchen. So I learned how to make. How did you find that 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 first experience of being in a professional kitchen for the first time? It was really bloody hard. It was really really hard. It was so. First of all, I was an oddball. I was older, so I had zero experience, and I was 26 or 27. You know, I was that. That is not a good place to be in a kitchen when you just start. Normally, with that level of experience, you're like 16 and robust. I was like 27 and like I've done stuff. So I was different. And it was just really, really long hours. It was like incredibly hard work. I, uh, I was like, you know, I was like, I, I, I think I arrived like at eight o'clock in the morning and often I didn't leave until like 11 o'clock yeah. at night. And so really tough. And I think I aimed really hard, like a mission start. You don't need to start. And now people ask me, oh, what's your, what is your, uh, you know, piece of advice for, I guess, don't start in a Michelin star restaurant. It's just <laughs> like such a, it's awful because it just taints the whole experience in one particular way. You go like really hard work and, 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 but I didn't last very long because I thought like this is just it's just too much. And I, so I think I worked there for about three months, three or four months. Part of it unpaid at the very beginning. And then I started working when I finished my studies. I did proper like paid work. And then I had a bit of a crisis because I thought like I'm not really enjoying this. You know, this is not this is not for me. You know, I remember like going and like and also it was hard because I, I was dropped into the deep end. Like I, the chef would tell me, go get go make like a he wanted to make like a, a lobster bisque, you know, like and, and he goes and there were lobsters in the in the walk in fridge and there was the pot. And that's all I was giving. You know, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. And I was just like it was hard. So I had this moment of like crisis and I thought like, I, I, maybe this is not for me. Maybe I do. Maybe my dad was right. Maybe, you know, it's like I should build on what I've, what I've done so far and not what I'm aiming, you know, doing now. And then I, so, but I, I stuck to it and I think I was really lucky. Actually, I went, so I, I was looking for a job in somewhere slightly less stressful. So I went to speak to Sally Clark, who was running her restaurant in Kensington. I don't know why I thought I'd gonna get a job there. It looked like a nice restaurant, more like old. It actually feels logical now that you sort of say that, knowing kind of the way that the ethos of that business is. That feels like yeah, a really good fit. It felt really good, and also she was doing this Californian food thing that it was more vegetable focused and felt close to what I feel naturally uh, I gravitate towards like that whole kind of like really French Michelin thing is not really my thing and I realized that at that point so I just thought I'll, I'll, I'll go for a job there this is the kind of place that probably I would probably more enjoy more she didn't have a job but she was really nice and she took her time to sit with me and kind of give me some advice and she sent me, she sent me across the street to Roly Lee 
at Kensington Place, which was another great restaurant, uh, but of a different kind yet again, you know, really, really good soul food and but like modern British, I guess, yeah. meet, meets France. And it was, and he had a job for me and, um, and he was also like Sally. I mean, it was all about the food. It wasn't about the regimented kind of rules of how do you operate a kitchen, which is so much, so really not, not that interesting for me. My was positions and jobs and, and, and procedures and stuff. He just cooked amazing food. I remember yeah. he was, so he gave me, a, because I had my pastry experience, he gave me a job in the pastry section and I worked for him for a couple of years doing both pastries and like the main kitchen. And he personally taught me so many things like how to make a, a, a you know, a, a summer pudding. You know, this was like, we're talking about the 90s, the 1990s, yeah. like, you know, like summer pudding or these kind of like souffles, you know, with goat's cheese and like things that are for me, like feel classics of that particular period. But and that was I really got a lot of confidence out of working with Rowley. He's that he has he had all the time. He had good team, good had good chefs working with him. And I and I got a lot of like a boost to my confidence working in his restaurants. Did you, did you always think at that time, though? From, from starting out that you always figured you would end up doing it for yourself rather than for somebody else, do you think? Yeah, I, well, this is a funny thing. No, I didn't really think that. I, I, haven't, I didn't have the confidence to say, okay, I'll do it to, for myself. It took a couple of more kind of steps along the way. So I worked for Roly in his restaurants, Kensington Place and Launceston Place for a couple of years. And then I wanted to to learn more about patisserie, like, because I was, I was doing other bits, but pastry was the thing where I was kind of, I was, I was feeling strong. So I went, I got a job at Baker and Spice, which was a small kind of trotter deli place in Knightsbridge that I felt I could learn a lot about vinoiserie, the art of uh, croissant and Danish making and, uh, and things that I really wanted to do. I have a tiny stint for like, literally a couple of weeks at Maison Blanc that I didn't really enjoy. And then I moved on to Baker and Spice. And there I, I, had, I started getting this notion that I, this, like running a small operation, I didn't know if it was going to be a takeout deli or a restaurant, is something that I could possibly do. But I, I wouldn't have, it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the people that I was working with, like my partners that ended up my business partners later on, because one of them was Noam, which is my uh, ex-partner, uh, that we came to Brit England together as, as a couple and then he left and when he came after he did his degree he left and after a year he came back and he had that kind of business mind he said like yeah. we could do something together with your talent and experience and with my business background which is kind of quite cheeky you know like when I was I didn't have tons of experience in the industry but I what was it like four or five years of, of restaurants so what are you now so you sort of 30 31 yeah, 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 and this was 2002, yeah, yeah. so five years after coming to yeah. London. And, uh, and he said, like, we can do it. And then the other person is Sammy, Sammy Tamimi, who, is, who was working with me at Baker and Spice. And he's, he's the, the third, at that point, we, now we're more, but at that point it was the three of us. And he was, um, he's also from Jerusalem, he's Palestinian, so we had a lot of things in common in terms of the palate and how we see food and how we experience, you know, our, our background was really kind of similar in some ways. And he were also worked at Baker and Spice, cooking amazing food, you know, not necessarily Palestinian food, but food inspired by his 
journeys, yeah. you know. Again, a lot of vegetables, a lot of fresh and heavy use of herbs and citrus and garlic and, you know, there's chilies of strong flavors. And together, the three of us kind of started the Ottolenghi uh, Delhi that we started in 2002 in Notting Hill. Like you asked, your question was whether I knew. I never knew, but it's like one thing led to another. I never had a plan. But with our different talents and backgrounds, the three of us managed to create a kind of a formula, an idea, which is that kind of really fresh food made every day for people. To, and also the presentation was a very particular of that. It looks a little bit like a market in Jerusalem, but not of, with ingredients, rather with like cooked food, you know, that yeah. kind of bu building up and, you know, beautiful platters and everything looking, you know, super sexy. I, I remember going there, oh, I, I can't remember when, and feeling that it was, some, aside from the quality of, of what I ate, that there was something special about about that whole thing, about the, the, the concept, about the idea, about the voice that it had. Yeah. It felt that it was, it was unique in you. Yeah, I think we didn't really know. So when we, when we were, we were, the three of us had quite different backgrounds, but also I have a very good close friend, Alex, who's an architect, and he was, had a really clear visual language for this. And he said, like, you know, I want everything to be white. And it didn't feel very right for London at the time. You know, like food is always associated with like the warmer materials. So, yeah. we, but he used Corian and like white backgrounds and like whitewashed walls. And he said, that, I want that kind of look. And people that came into our deli, they said, well, it feels like you're in Sydney or the, or the Mediterranean or like it, or Greece, you know, that kind of. But somehow he said that is the best background for your food. You know, Alex said that. So from him and the three of us, together working, that whole visual language came up. Again, without plan, nobody sat and said, oh, like, what would be the right colors for this thing? We just kind of worked naturally. What do we want to cook? What do we want to bake? How we're going to present it? But we did spend a lot of time thinking about platters and heights and stands and flower arrangements and like it needed to look great. And the funny thing is like when it looked great, we also sold a lot of food. So it was kind of our business success rested on the visuals. Were you busy from the, from the start? We were really busy from the start. I remember this first or second Saturday, we were so overwhelmed because we were such amateurs. We had no idea what we were doing. Like literally, like we never owned a business. We never ran a business. It was all a lot of, you know, like just, you know, tried by, by, by error. And, and we had like also the people that we hired to work were like inexperienced Aussies that like we, you know, we put an ad in Gumtree, everything feels so old now, but you know, yeah. and a bunch of like girls from, uh, from uh, Sydney and, uh, and Byron Bay arrive, you know, in their sandals and like, we'll run this deli for you. Okay, that's fine. Do you have any experience? <laughs> yeah, you know, we ran a beach shack on the in <laughs> And we're there and it's like a Saturday morning and like people are queuing around the corner. We can't make enough food and we d we're not really prepared for this and it's like it was incredible it was really like you can imagine a rush of adrenaline but also like we need to do something like, like it's just not working and that we kind of over the years we learned the hard way how important service is and getting ready and being prepared and all that kind of it's it is funny is it because i mean in, in, a, in a different way but with a similarity when i opened greens in 1990 we were the same we had no idea really what we were doing we knew what we wanted to do but we didn't know how to run a business and we were constantly i'd go to market every morning at five o'clock and i'd buy fresh produce on the day and i'd learn about produce and then we'd cook stuff and then quite often in the afternoon we'd go 
run out of everything. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and we're open for service and kind of like, you know, in a few hours. And then you end up going to a supermarket and kind of buying what you could. And thinking, we're making no money out of this because we're just having to buy things at so, retail prices. I think a lot of chefs go through this when they set up a business with their own or someone else's. I mean, that, that kind of like, it's all about the food and you are really ignorant of the other side of the business. And now, like, you know, a few decades, decades on, I understand how important it is to have like the right environment, the right business plan, the idea of like, what am I going to sell? How much of it, etc. Do you have less of these kind of nasty surprises when you write out of everything, you yeah. know, but before you even start. But I guess it's an age thing as well. You know, we were relatively young and you just you just make mistakes, don't you? That's yeah, and you, and you almost kind of accept it. You go, okay, you, you know you're doing about the seat of your pants and you're just excited when you see that cue and the feedback that you get. What, what kind of things were you making then that have still sort of remained with you? Like kind of almost everything. So in a way that that idea that, you know, you make like very vegetable heavy platters of wonderfully roasted butternut squash with a dressing or a salsa or a sprinkle or, you know, those things that people associate with our kind of food. Uh, you know, a salad of like whole grains with, again, with nuts or, or a particular pickle that goes in that kind of breaks through. You know, the, all, all those things are still very much on the menu. I mean, the, the details change a bit, but the, the idea is there. It's funny because, you know, you, you mentioned that and all of those things now, everyone goes, yeah, 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 I know what those are. But you were at the forefront of that. You know, nobody was really doing that in, yeah. in the UK market, for yeah. sure. Well, I think that is something that I can say now that we kind of invented in some ways. Again, without planning, I mean, it wasn't like, what are we going to do? But in some ways, we were always informed by the customers, which is incredible. As a retailer or as a restaurateur, you always have this kind of incredible, you can tip into people's psyches through what they do, through their eating habits. And I remember, like, we couldn't just cut enough aubergine slices and grill them and come up with a, with a, you know, with a salsa verde to go with or whatever herb for people to buy. So in some ways, yes, we were, th- we were there, we were creating a blueprint for something, but the customers always informed this process. You know, we, we have this char-grilled broccoli with chili and garlic. We have had it from day one, and we still have it on the menu now, 20 years this wow. year. And people just love that way of preparation of broccoli. It's like the antidote to the way they've eaten broccoli growing up, you know, exactly, overcooked, yeah. looking gray and drabby and horrible, right? Like, so that is, just keeps all the freshness in and it's got that, like, like that chili and lemon and garlicky flavor. That's, that's delicious. So in a way, those are still there. And same applies for the other side, which is the naughty side, the, the pastry counter, you know, with the freshly baked cakes and, and tarts and like the treats. And I always like to say that these kind of mirror each other. It has something good and something which is also really, really good. And I, I hate it when people say sweets or desserts are bad. It's just yeah. like how you, what you do with them. So we always, you know, for, and it's still my passion, you know, that pastry counter with uh, freshly baked sponges and coconut macaroons and chocolate chip cookies and whatever it is that we do in the brownies that we have with the hazelnut and janjuja. So all these things are, again, they're just kind of still there, but just maybe different flavors. And When did you start getting national recognition? Because you started writing for The Guardian in 2006. Yeah, that, that's where it started. So in a way, um, so after we opened Notting Hill, we opened in Islington on Upper Street and The Guardian office was just down the road in Farringdon from, from Upper Street. And um, the, 
Guardian journalists or editors used to come for their lunches up to eat our food <laughs> and they've, they've, they realized that there's something interesting going on with vegetables so they asked me to write a vegetarian column for The Guardian and uh, with that came more and more recognition by you know step by step because in some ways this, there was a tiny column you know it was literally a column yeah. <laughs> you know one, one fourth of a, of a page and there was no image, it was literally just like there's Fatouche salad, you know, Palestinian salad with bread and tomatoes and that. it was a recipe. But it grew and then in 2008 we had our cookbook, the Ottolenghi cookbook came out and that had a much wider audience and it was translated to other languages and it became a thing, you know, that, that has become... So I would say from 2008 when the book was published onwards it has, be, it has started growing quite I mean, the, the book sold over, you know, for your, for your first book, you sold over 100,000 copies initially, and it's probably yeah. far, far more now than when you started. Yeah. But it did, almost everything that you were doing, suddenly, like you say, it, it gained a wider audience. And there's something about that combination of flavours that you do, which, yes, I know there's a history with it, but there's something extra. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is that people always credit... Sammy and me for like introducing the British and other you know audiences in the West, Western world to Middle Eastern ingredients and, and dishes and I always say that is just not true you know so Claudia Roden wrote her Middle Eastern cookbook in 1968 which was the year Sammy and I were born you know there's yeah. this it's all there you know that book it actually got a re release again now you know 50 years plus on and it's an incredible book because it's got all the classical dishes of Palestinian cooking, Lebanese, North African, etc. It's a very um, comprehensive book. But I think it hasn't reached the, the, the audiences that we reached. And I think one of the reasons why we did is because we slightly modernized the dishes. Not, modernized is not the right word because some dishes are, don't need hummus as hummus. And mm. you, but a lot of it is like a certain degree of tinkering in how you choose to present the food. So yeah, the, the, the style, the whole kind of message, the whole voice of it was about kind of, you know, this, this is now. That's what it felt like. And it's playful. So, you know, you can take a hummus and you can you can like zhuzh up the topping and make it look more like exciting and you can but also we didn't really do traditional dishes up until like when we published Jerusalem the cookbook that which was kind of a few years later it's just the use of the ingredients tahini and za'atar and preserved lemons and you know and, and or orange blossom water and a bunch of things that were key in, in different kind of Middle Eastern cuisines we use them creatively in different ways. So we kind of like, we thought, okay, so that, let's just take it out of its particular space and bring it to things that are more accessible. And I think in the, in the, the world we live in now, the visuals are so clear because we all follow this different social media that, we, that are you know, proponents of this kind of visual attitude to, to food. But that's a di the difference is that we brought that visual attitude a bit earlier, like, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. It, it, it's, I think, that it felt lifestyle as well as food. You know, that, that kind of crossover from, like you say, from Korea Road, which, which is fantastic, but it felt like this is a cookery book. Yours felt an aspirational piece of work. In a way, also people aspired to eat more vegetables, which I think was, was a key moment also. So it's the kind of this kind of perfect storm of like wanting to be, to eat more vegetables. I mean, I'm not talking about turning 
vegetarian, I'm talking about like literally yeah. introducing a lot of more vegetables into your diet. Plus then notion that there's a lot to learn in Middle East, in the, from the Middle East that we have already learned from maybe Italy and Greece and North Africa, but we are ready for, the, some people are ready to, to expose themselves to that part of the world. And I think the Middle Eastern ingredients are really incredibly good when it comes to, to cooking vegetables and cooking with vegetables. So there's nothing like a yogurt sauce to go with the majadra, which is rice with lentils and fried onion. Yeah. I mean, that yogurt sauce just makes it. So cooking with yogurt or using yogurt as a condiment, which we do a lot, is something people maybe have not known. They always thought that yogurt is just a fruity thing that you yeah. have with your yeah. breakfast. Uh, that is something. So you bring those two things together, the, the ingredients plus the vegetables, and that was very powerful, I think. When you, when you develop food now, because every time I've kind of worked with you, every time you've kind of come on to Sunday Brunch and you've cooked, you constantly just blow my mind with a little twist of an ingredient. Maybe even more so in your, in your sweet dishes, that there's a little twist on there. Has that always been there? Yeah, it has always been there in the sense that uh, since I published Plenty, which is my first vegetable cookbook yeah. and um, till now, I think one of the things that I realized about vegetables is like, you know, there's this kind of idea that if you, give, if you eat vegetables, you give up something, right? Like you give up something that meat has, which is also true in reality. Veg meat has a certain flavors that you just can't get with vegetables and textures that are just not there. So you need to... Uh, put a little bit of extra work when you, are with, when you work with the vegetables to make them as exciting and as compelling to people who are to meat eaters or even to not meat eaters. And um, so I always find I need to infuse my vegetables with something else, something different. And often that has become part of the Ottolenghi uh, kind of like signature thing is that there's a twist, there's something slightly different that just makes it feel a little bit more spe special and and uh, sometimes for me that is the thing you know that is what that's the holy grail for a recipe so when we are in in my test kitchen i've got a team working and we try something out and we go that's really good but it's missing out that little twist yeah. at the end you know <laughs> like what are we going to do the challenge is that it doesn't feel like gratuitous. It doesn't feel like it's unnecessary. That's exactly it. Yeah, it's not doing it for effect. It's doing it because, yeah. Because it makes sense. Like with fusion food in the bad sense of it, that like as we as we remember it from like 20 years ago, uh, it was always about like trying really hard to make things meet, meet, which are not necessarily destined to meet. And if you do it badly, then it just doesn't work. You thought like, he's an idiot, she's an idiot. Like why have they done it this way? Yeah. Because it's like, that pasta dish did not need the seaweed, you know, like what, why? So in some ways, you need to be super sensitive to your ingredients and think, oh, that's a, that makes sense and that doesn't make sense. So I spend a lot of my time doing these judgment, these calls when, when that twist is necessary and useful and when it's not. But that's something that's very hard to break into, like why it works and why it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't, sometimes. Trauma in the mouth is an expression that you use, which I think is, yeah. which absolutely sums up your, your food brilliantly. I think you're also the only person who we've ever had on grilling whose name has actually become a verb. I think, I think <laughs> to Ottolenghi has almost, become, <laughs> has almost become something that people kind of re refer to in, in terms of how they cook these days. You know, it's funny. I use it myself, you know, to, yeah. uh, to, to do Ottolenghi, to Ottolenghify, which is weird because it's, it's my name. But yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a food language that people understand. Sometimes I see, look and it, it makes me chuckle when I see like, um, like catering companies do like menu stars. Oh, we can do 
Japanese and we can do Southern Italians in Ottolenghi style and this and that. I really, yeah. really, but it's yeah. yeah. And it's, it, it, but it's very flattering, you know. I, I, I'm, I never take it f like for granted, you know. It's like, it's yeah. a great feeling to have that people recognize something um, that that has become a thing, you know. Oh, that's all big right. time. We're doing something slightly different on Grilling Sam. Normally, I set the barbecue challenge where you can choose whatever you want and you can kind of cook it. This time, we're actually going to get you to physically cook it. Uh, so we're going to be out there on our, on our Weber Genesis. What are you going to make for us? So I'm going to do Hasselback beetroot, which is, um, maybe people would know that from a potato. So it's just a preparation way where you uh, slice very, very thinly into, uh, into beetroot, but without cutting the slices yeah. so that they're held at the base. And uh, as, as the beetroot grills, I'm going to be basting those little ridges in the beetroot with, uh, with the flavoured butter. So uh, butter flavoured with ginger and garlic and lime. So they'll kind of absorb those flavour as they sit on the grill. And I'm going to sit, uh, serve it with a salsa with similar flavours and lime leaves and kind of a yoghurt sauce to go with. Sounds nice. And as well as watch it, then uh, Weber.com is where you can find all the information. I've got one more thing that, uh, that I, I want you to do for me. So we ask all of our guests. So you're going to take me, you can take me anywhere in the world to eat, right? It doesn't have to be posh. It could be a market school. It could be anything. Somewhere that if you and I now were going to get in a car, get in a plane, get on a boat, whatever, uh. where are we going to go and what are we going to eat? The, that sets the, the bar really high because if you can take an airplane, then you know, you, I'll, I'll go to this place in, in Mallorca where I was like traveling and there's this restaurant on a cliff and you had the really delicious paella, I would say. But I would just take you actually in London because I live in, in Camden okay. and around the corner from where I live on Parkway, there's this falafel place called Round Falafel and it's run by two Lebanese guys. And uh, it's literally, it's just like a hole in the wall. Like if you've ever imagined a hole in the wall, that is a hole in the wall. It's, right. it's like 70 centimeters wide and like two meters deep, you know. Yeah. The, and they just make falafel. That's, and there may be some fried halloumi and chicken, but they do these wraps. And they just start frying the falafel only when you order your pita pocket. You know, uh -huh. they, it never sits there because it has yeah. to be freshly fried. That's just like the rule of the game, both in, in the Middle East and obviously with them. And there's like chopped up salad, some pickles, some tahini and chili sauce, oh, and they make it yes. for you. <laughs> and yeah, it's heavenly. And I go there like at least twice a week. Like, I, yeah, because it's like I come home sometimes in the middle of the day, one o'clock. I go like, what am I going to do? That what am I going to eat that I really want to eat? And that's just also really healthy. And then I go to the guys, and they make it. If you get a choice with that as a recommendation, right, we're going. Next time I'm in London and I'm near you, then yeah. you and I... Yeah, yeah, you come over going, and I'll right. take you Definitely. Uh, awesome, it's always a joy to see you. You, you know, you, you, I, I feel like I've only sort of touched the surface on the many things I want to ask you, but, you know, it, it's just been brilliant, brilliant having you on. And, you know, thank you so much. And, <laughs> Lovely and conversation. keep doing what you're doing, because it's amazing. Thank you. Well, that was such a brilliant conversation. Who knew that Yotam Ottolenghi wants you to serve sex workers whilst wearing rubber gloves? I might have made one part of that up. Head to Weber.com to watch Yotam and I put together his utterly delicious Hasselback beetroot and lime leaf butter. Rest assured, the flavours are absolutely stunning. Now, next time, I'll be joined by a returning Andy Oliver who we couldn't resist asking back to show off her skills on the grill. 
You can hear my previous conversation with her and every single other guest we've had on the podcast via your preferred app or provider. Each one is very different, but united by a common and occasionally obsessive love of all things food. I'm Simon Rimmer. See you next time.